So last summer, River City began going through the Psalms one by one, starting with Psalm 1. And I've been really encouraged by this series. Um, And now I'm excited that I get to participate in the preaching of these Psalms. One thing that I've been reminded of by this series is that often we look at the Psalms as a book of poetic pick and choose. If we're down and discouraged, we find a psalm that reminds us of God's goodness and encourage us. If we're happy, there's psalms that help direct our happiness towards God. If we've sinned, there's psalms that inform us of what true confession looks like and helps us to confess our sins to God. Despite this pick-and-choose mentality, and there's nothing wrong with that, it's good for us to do this, the book of Psalms actually has a coherent framework and a message. And the first two Psalms highlight this message for us and lay out a brief foundation of what the book of Psalms is all about. Now, I'm just stealing this information, using it from a video from the Bible Project called An Overview of the Psalms. And if you haven't watched it, I'd highly recommend it because as we're going through the Psalms, it's a good reminder of what the Psalms is all about. So Psalm 1 begins the book of Psalms and it talks about this blessed man who meditates on the law of the Lord, the Torah. And for the ancient Hebrews, this Torah was the first five books of the Bible. But the psalmist was using this word to also mean any instruction about how to worship God. And so this dual meaning helps us to understand that the book of Psalms is an instruction manual of how we are to live our life before God. But Psalm 2 introduces this concept of a Messiah king, someone who will come, destroy evil, and rule righteously. So the book of Psalms, written and compiled before the coming of Christ, reminds the people of what it'll look like to faithfully await the coming of the kingdom of God, which is ruled by this Messiah figure. So why am I bringing up these two psalms? First, I want to remind everyone here that the book of Psalms isn't merely to help us with certain needs in our lives, but to help us to faithfully live out God's instruction, God's law in every area of our life, and to help us await the coming kingdom of God, who is ruled by the Messiah. Secondly, Psalm 15, which is where we'll be diving today, and you can turn your Bibles there, um, can be better understood when we understand that Psalms is this teaching and instruction and about the Messiah. So, uh, Psalm 15, a Psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? who shall dwell on your holy hill. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks the truth in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. This is the word of the Lord for us today. So growing up, one of my favorite movies was the Lindsay Lohan Parent Trap. In this movie, there's a pair of twins who are separated at birth 
because their parents get a divorce. One of the twins goes to live with the father, one goes to live with the mother. So both of them grew up longing to know and to live with the other parent, but they're unable to because they don't know them. However, one summer, these twins attend the same summer camp and learn that they're twin sisters. In the midst of this conversation, they both express how they've been longing to meet that other parent. Now, like these twins, we today can have this sense that something important is missing from our lives. Some of us can be actively aware of it. We can point, this is what I'm missing. This is what has happened in my life that I know that it's missing. But others of us have this nagging feeling that something's missing. Something's wrong with the world and my life within this world. This psalm reminds us that this missing thing is the presence of God. So let me ask you a question. How do you see the absence of living with the presence of God in your life today? This could show up in the feeling of disappointment in the world, that there's so much evil in the world. It could also show up as a sense of loneliness, even though we're living among a group of believers. Let me ask you again. How do you see this absence of living with God in your life today? In the midst of this feeling and sensation, Psalm 15 reminds us of three biblical truths, which are my three points today. First, we are created to live with God. Second, we can only live with God through the blameless man. And third, one day we will live with God. So for the first point, we were created to live with God, coming from verse 1. This psalm opens with David asking the Lord two questions. Who shall sojourn in your tent, and who shall dwell on your holy hill? These two questions are asking the same thing, which is, who can live with God? Now this may seem like a weird conclusion to draw from the questions. How do we get from God's tent and holy hill to God himself. In order to understand this conclusion, we have to understand what the tent and the holy hill meant to David, the author. The tent is a reference to the tabernacle, which was built in the time of Moses. And the holy hill has a lot of history, but the origins of the holy hill is actually the Garden of Eden. So what do the tabernacle and the Garden of Eden have in common? They're temples. And how do we know that they are temples? There's a lot of similarities between the Garden of Eden and the tabernacle. But the most important characteristic is that the presence of God was visible in both of these places. So how do we see this? First, in the Garden of Eden, after creating Adam, Genesis states, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And later, after the fall, Genesis says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. 
Do you see the interaction between the presence of the Lord and Adam and Eve? The Lord took Adam, placed him in the garden. The Lord was living, interacting with Adam. Adam was created to interact with his presence of God. God made a sound when he walked in the Garden of Eden, which scared Adam and Eve, and they decided to hide themselves from his presence. But it's his very presence which is what makes the Garden of Eden a temple. And more than this, it reminds us again that we were actually created to live in this garden with God. One of the important aspects of this is once Adam and Eve are kicked out of Eden, there's no more recorded interaction between the presence of God and Adam and Eve. Next, let's look at the tabernacle. Um, In the book of Exodus, there's 15 chapters devoted to God's instruction to Moses of how the tabernacle should be built and the actual construction of the tabernacle. When I first read these chapters, I was confused because they repeat themselves often. There's a lot of things that are difficult to understand and the actual importance of it can be hidden from us in our modern day. However, at the end of Exodus, after the tabernacle is completely put together, um, Exodus says, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. All of those weird dimensions and instructions of the tabernacle are there because the tabernacle was to be the place where the presence of God resided. One small comment about this. This verse shows us that because God's presence was in the tabernacle, Moses could not enter it. But after Exodus comes the book of Leviticus, which has many laws and instructions for the people of Israel. And Leviticus also can be difficult for us to understand and read today. But the next book, Numbers, begins with Moses talking to God in the tabernacle. See, Leviticus, the laws, the instructions, is the way in which Moses was able to enter the presence of God. And again, this tabernacle is a type of temple, like the Garden of Eden, where God's presence lived. So why bring up all this temple talk? What is David doing by bringing up the Garden of Eden and the tabernacle in this psalm. See, David is reminding those who are listening and reading this psalm that we were created to live with God. We were created to know him, to interact with him, to talk, to share our very lives with him. And this is our purpose for living. And yet, sometimes, we forget that this is why God created us. So let me ask you, do you desire to live with God? If you don't, why not? What other purpose is more important than living with God for you? If you do desire to live with God, how do you know? Where have you seen this desire to live with God show up in your life? How have you tried to live your life differently because of it? So Psalm 15 first reminds us that we were all created to live with God. But point two is that we can only live with God through a blameless man. Verses one through four. 
See, David's questions at the beginning of this psalm not only remind us of the purpose to which we were created, but also shows us that in David's time, there was actually no one who was able to live with God. In David's time, there was no one actually living in the tabernacle. There were priests who were able to enter, and only through a ton of bloodshed. But those priests had to leave after a day. Thus, we have a problem. This problem is that since Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden, all people have been unable to live with God. In the rest of Psalm 15, David reminds us of this by laying out the standard, the instructions, the rules, the characteristics of a man who can live with God. These instructions, when rightly understood, should do two things in our life. First, Verses 2 through 5 should remind us and convict us um, where we fall short of living with God. As we read about the man who can live with God, how he walks blamelessly and always does what is right, as we see how he does no evil, how he honors those who fear the Lord, how he always fulfills his word, we should be able to recognize that we are different. We do not always do what is right. We slander with our tongues. We sometimes envy vile people. And we don't always honor those people who fear the Lord. These instructions that David gives us in this psalm remind us that we have failed. We have lost our ability to live with God. We cannot do that which we were created to do. And while many know this truth in our heads, How many of us allow God's word to speak this truth in our hearts? How many of you are like me, that when I read these verses of these instructions, I know that I have failed, but I choose not to dig more deeply into where I have failed. Where have I failed to honor those who fear the Lord? So I want to encourage you, and I know it might be difficult, but I want to let these verses speak to us in our lives to help us see more clearly where we have broken God's standard. And so I want to encourage you, would you take some time this week to read Psalm 15 and to ask God to show you where you have failed. Secondly, these standards, these instructions, point us to the Messiah who is able to live with God. This is where Psalm 15 connects importantly with Psalm 2. The Messiah is predicted is longed for in Psalm 15. David gives us an image of what the Messiah will be like. This Messiah will be perfect, blameless, and will seek the good of others. More than that, because we're on this side of the cross, we know that Jesus is the one who fits this Messiah role. Peter, writing to a group of exiled Christians, explains Jesus to them by saying, Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in the body of the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus is the one human in all of history who was able to perfectly keep the law. He 
he perfectly had all these characteristics that David describes of the one who could live with God. And because of this, Jesus right now is living at the right hand of the throne of God. Because Jesus fulfilled that which we could not do, he is now living with God the Father in heaven. But more than that, because of Jesus and what he has done, we are now many temples where God's Holy Spirit resides. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, lives within us who believe. This is God's presence living with man today. And the Holy Spirit is a wonderful gift from Jesus. Thus, there's nothing we have done to deserve the Holy Spirit, but Christ gives us this gift freely from his own goodness. So what does this mean for us today that Jesus is living with God? What difference does it make in our lives today that he has given us his Holy Spirit as a gift? I believe that since it's only through Christ that we are able to live with God and have the Holy Spirit dwell within us, we can give up on our own efforts to earn our place by God's side. For myself, this means that I can give up my pursuit of knowledge. For those of you that know me, you know that I love knowing things. I love facts. I love figures. I love history. I love being able to show off the things that I know by getting every question right on Jeopardy. I also don't like not getting questions right on Jeopardy because it means I don't know enough. But if I'm honest with you and myself, I believe that when I know enough information and I know enough of the right information, only then will I be able to live with God. It's somehow in knowing the right things I will earn my place by God's side. And to be honest, it's exhausting. I'm always trying to figure out the right, the right argument between two competing sides, trying to figure out what information is correct. And I become anxious as it seems at times there are no right answers. However, Christ frees me from this pursuit of knowledge. Because of Christ, I no longer need to seek out knowing the right information because I'm already a temple of the Holy Spirit. God is already living within me. So, what aspect of your life do you believe will bring you close to God? What thing that you do do you think will earn you the right to live next to God? Maybe you're looking towards material goods and success. If only I have the right house or the right job or the right accomplishments, then I can earn my right to live next to God. Maybe you're looking to have your life in order. If only my family would uh, be perfect. If my wife and my kids would act properly and seen as acting properly in the eyes of others, then I could earn my place by God's side. What is the thing that you believe will earn you God's presence? may I kindly remind you that whatever this thing is in your life, it can never give you life with God. 
Only through Christ can this happen. But how would seeing Christ as the only way to live with God change how you live day to day? Psalm 15 then reminds us that we were created to live with God, but it also shows us that in our own power, we cannot do this because we are not perfect. But through Jesus Christ, the blameless man, we are now temples of the Holy Spirit, God living in us. And that turns us to point three. One day, we will live with God, verse five. Lastly, this psalm looks forward to the day where we will be reunited with God. David ends this psalm with the line, he who does these things shall never be moved. What's the implication of this verse? The man who is blameless can never be moved. But where is this man? Where is Jesus? The blameless man, Jesus Christ, is living with God. Thus, the promise of this line is that Jesus can never be moved from the presence of God. Jesus, right now, is living at the right hand of the Father, and he will never be moved. And this is good news for us today. Why? Because through Jesus, we too will live with the Father. At his last supper with his disciples, Jesus tells them, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place with you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that you may be where I am also and you know the way to where I am going. Jesus, right now at the right hand of the Father, and while he's there, he's preparing a place for us to live with God. More than that, Jesus promises that he will come again to bring us to be with the Father. So because Jesus cannot be moved at the Father's side, we have great assurance that we too will get to live with God forever and ever. Now, I tried to come up with a wonderful image of what this would look like, but I found out quickly that anything I came up with would pale in comparison to what John says in Revelation. As Heidi read earlier, John has been given this vision of what this day will look like when Jesus comes and brings us back to God and we will get to dwell with God forever. And he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is the moment that history has been longing for. God coming to live with his people in the new heavens and the new earth. Ever since Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden, Mankind has been waiting once again to live with God. More than that, 
through Jesus, this is the glorious future to which we are promised. There will be no more death, no more pain, no crying. But yet there are tears. There isn't any crying. How could there be tears? See, in the movie Parent Trap, after the twins switch places and go to their parents' home they have never met before, there are two minutes, two moments in this film, one for each of the girls, where they begin to cry. But why? Because they are finally home. These girls begin to cry because they now have what they've been missing their whole lives. In a similar manner, we've been created to live with God and find our home in him. Yet we don't know exactly what we have been missing. But one day soon, we will be face to face with God and we will understand that his presence is our home. And I know at least for me, that there will be many tears coming out of my eyes. And God will get to wipe away every one of those tears because now I am at home. So how does knowing the ending of this story change us today? How can knowing that one day soon we will live with God through Christ change our lives? I think this is where we need a slightly altered definition of a phrase we have probably heard many times. And that phrase is the already and the not yet. For an example, based on this psalm, we already have the Holy Spirit living in us, but we are not yet living in the fullness of God. I think it might be better for us to think of this phrase as the already and the more to come. As in, we already have the Holy Spirit living in us and there is more of God's presence to come. In seeing our lives in this already and more to come, I think we're able to continue to strive towards perfection, towards being blameless. Not because it'll earn us our place by God's side, but because soon we will be dwelling with God. As Paul says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. See, knowing that one day soon we will get to live with God should give us hope today that we can continue to work towards being in the presence of God. So let me ask you, how would your life look different if you woke up tomorrow knowing that I will get to live with God soon? Is there an area of sin in your life that you, will said, you have said before, I'll never be able to overcome that? How can knowing that you will live with God soon encourage you to continue to fight that area of sin today? And lastly, how can we as a church continue to encourage one another with the promise that we will live with God forever? And might I suggest as an answer to this last question, that community groups are the way that we can encourage one another. During my time here at River City, we got to dive into God's word as a community of 
10 people, we got to see these truths work themselves out in each other's lives and see the hardship that life brings on and encourage people in the faith. So if you're in part of a community group, can I applaud you and say continue going? But if you aren't a part of a community group, can you find me? Can you find Devin, the man who introduced me? Um, and we can help you try to get involved with somewhat a group. So this psalm reminds us of three biblical truths. We were created to live with God. We cannot live with God, but only through the blameless man can we live with him. And one day soon, we will live with God. May these truths encourage us to put aside those things, um, those ways that we're trying to earn God's presence. And may these truths encourage us every day as we strive to continue to live in the presence of God. Let me pray. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that you've created us to know you, to live with you, and to live in your presence. Thank you that you have been working throughout history to bring us back to you. Because even though we've sinned, uh, you have worked to forgive us of our sins and to bring us back into your presence. Would these truths help sink into our hearts? And would you help us to worship you, not only here on Sunday, but every day of the week, knowing someday soon we will dwell with you fully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.